All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 27 of the Macro Corner podcast, proudly presented by Blue Line Futures. I'm your host, Paul Wankmuller. My co-host today is Giannis Mindall. Welcome to the show, Giannis. Hey, Paul. It's great to be back on the show today. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have a busy week here in the United States. It is Fed Week here. And of course, front and center is inflation. So let's dive right into that. So we clearly have been uh, dealing with inflation globally, but we do have two numbers that have uh, recently come out. It is the PPI that came out last week, and the CPI is going to be coming out on Tuesday, December 13th. But I do believe there might be a mismatch in what these inflation gauges are telling us. Want to go into a little bit more about that? Yeah, exactly. So one of the key themes that we have seen is uh, that, of course, a lot of market participants are looking at CPI and PPI. But uh, one of the things that goes on with these measures is that sometimes they have lagging components that might not really be truly reflective of real-time dynamics in the economy. So one, one of the key factors that also Jay Powell at the Brookings Institution recently has pointed market towards is that they are also looking at some of the more real-time indicators of rents. So on Friday, we saw the headline print of PPI come out at three tenths plus month to month. That was a surprise on the upside and markets reacted sort of negatively initially. And one of the key contributors towards that inflation dynamic has been that crude oil prices. I mean, they're right now trading in the low 70s, but we need to be aware of the fact that there are still some of these tail risks out there, including the ban of the EU on Russian seaborne crude. And then mm -hmm. as we turn to next year, the EU will put a ban on Russian oil products in early February. So that is some of the tail risks uh, and the, some of the tail risk factors we're watching. One key theme within the PPI was the contribution of final demand for food, which contributed about two tenths to the three tenths increase. So one of the dynamics that we're also watching is, of course, with the ripple effects of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you, we've had a lot of talk around, is Russia going to continue exporting fertilizer product? Is Belarus going to continue exporting fertilizer? And whether some of those knock-on effects are only about to take place here in the coming months is a key thing to watch. And whether some of these food dynamics are going to persist and how the consumer is going to feel as a result of it. Right. And, and speaking of energy, I, I think uh, based on what we have in the newsletter that goes every Sunday, you're saying that gasoline and jet fuel levels are actually back to uh, slightly normal uh, previous to what we've been seeing lately. That's exactly it. I mean, we talked about things like uh, constrained refinery capacity in the past in this mm -hmm. podcast. We talked about the general theme of energy underinvestment, the fact that oil companies have just not invested to the same extent that they maybe were during the, the great fracking boom around 2014. But then it is surprising, especially with the amount of activity we have seen in the airports and also on the roads in and around Thanksgiving, that the inventory levels of jet fuel and also gasoline 
is around average when compared to previous years. So that is definitely interesting. And it just tells you that there's maybe some uh, demand dynamic out there that's maybe not not as strong as people might think at the moment. And that also contributes to the slowdown of inflation. Cool. And then just pointing out to that, you said, you know, that food component. So that's basically two thirds of that number was the food component. And, you know, going back to between the, uh, the dichotomy of, of bleeding and lagging inflation indicators, you know, we do see this, this uh, rhetoric in, in the media and the news, you know, saying headline peak, but is that really hit the mind of the consumers yet when you're saying the PPI is two thirds of that increase was in, in food? Yeah, I mean, one, one key theme that we'll continue to watch is as maybe some of the inflation is only going to get passed through to the consumer on a lag. How is the consumer going to feel? I mean, when you have things like groceries that you're so aware of as a consumer, then that has a different effect that uh, headline inflation has peaked and that of course affects financial markets so you do have different pockets in inflation that affect consumers in a different way and the consumer is ultimately uh, the component of the economy that's driving activity so that will be a thing to watch but then on the positive side it's definitely that import prices as well as export prices have come down real fast over the course of the last couple of months. And that is real-time indicator. Those right. are not in any way adjusted numbers. So that gives us a better sense for uh, what real-time inflation um, is currently doing. And for instance, import prices have uh, peaked at 13% back in March. We're right now down to 4.2% on a year-to-year -year basis. And the same is true for export prices, which have come down from 186 to uh, in May to 6.9 in October. Right. And then one way that manufacturers can kind of uh, alleviate the minds of the consumers, uh, especially for food, is what I've seen is just the boxes get smaller, but the price remains the same. And maybe that's what we'll see going forward. Exactly. I mean, shrinkflation is definitely a theme <laughs> here uh, alongside the price hikes. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, it is one to watch. Absolutely. Let's move on to the Fed. So we do have the meeting on Wednesday. That's going to be uh, December 14th. And we are looking at this five and a quarter number on the Fed funds. But, you know, how long would that process take? And in addition, Jerome Powell has been pretty clear about the indicators uh, that he looks for. You think those indicators that the Fed is watching might be changing as we go forward? And, you know, how long will it take till we get to five and a quarter? And also, what do you think the milestones are going to be that going forward that they're going to tell the market to watch uh, in this in this Wednesday's meeting? So this is going to be a really important thing going forward during future Fed meetings. So in the past, way most investors and traders were focused on is it going to be a 75 basis points increase? Is it going to be 50 or maybe 25? And I mean, we do expect 50 basis points uh, here on Wednesday and then perhaps another 50 early in the year next year. But and then we ultimately markets right now are pricing a five and a quarter ish fund rate early next year. Right. But then the question is going to be first, how long is the Fed going to remain tight on monetary policy? And then what key indicators are they going to be watching and communicating to all investors out there in terms of what milestones uh, will be reached at what point? Is it going to be unemployment? Is it going to be some of those more real-time indicators and maybe housing, maybe on the wage side? 
we don't know just yet. And that will continue to be a really important one as the Fed continues to stick to the broader theme of data dependence. What are the milestones going to be? That is where the conversation is currently shifting to. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, just, you know, moving in kind of a little bit in combination, um, you know, we did see that, you know, first and foremost, it was risk assets, right? The, the price of risk assets. But, you know, is the economic activity of those assets that are held, you know, by the by the average citizen here, is, is that kind of gauged by deposits versus loans? You know, clearly we've seen the stock market kind of hanging out. Our S&P is still at 4,000, you know, going back till, you know, a couple months. But, you know, what is the real gauge that the economic activity is is really impacting on the economic, on the uh, average consumer? Yeah, we've seen a lot of talk out there in terms of we have revolving credit, uh, including credit court debt ballooning and uh, all of these concerning and alerting dynamics. But then we need to think of the broader picture and what are the numbers that really drive economic activity. One thing we've seen is that economic activity as measured by, for instance, complaint of GDP is still extremely elevated at around 3.4%. Mm-hmm. And the reason behind those uh, real indicators continuing to stay relatively strong is when we compare net worth of US households and nonprofit organizations with Q4 of 2019, uh, net worth is about $20 trillion higher than it was back then. Another measure we can look at is the difference in between deposits and loans at commercial banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that difference is about $2 trillion higher than it was in December of 2019. So while we do see a leveling off, while the difference is not as large as it used to be, we still see that the consumer is relatively well off that's driving economic activity. And as long as the consumer remains relatively healthy, despite inflation dynamics that are not at all what we want them to be, then we can see economic activity hold up relatively well. And then of course it is all about how fast can inflation come down and is that transition to a lower inflation environment gonna come soon enough for the consumer to maybe still be in a relatively good position. If inflation is still extremely elevated at the point that all these deposits have gotten drained, then it would be a lot more concerning. So we will turn to rate of change dynamics again here, but for the time being, the consumer remains in a relatively healthy position. That's such an important part. And I think we really, really iterate that on our show. It is the rate of change of, of most economic numbers that you're going to, to to see the impact of. Absolutely. I mean, it is all about the change, all about the relative versus (laughs) the absolute position in the markets and economic data. Sounds good. Hey, let's finish it with treasury yields here. We do like to, to talk about that. And, you know, of course, Wednesday, they're going to be affected. Let's, let's see which way they go. What's going on in the yield market here. What's the twos and tens. What are we looking at here and how are the holders of this debt uh, holding up? Speaking of Europe, Japan, Uh, and of course, China. Yeah, so treasury yields have definitely come off. Um, um, Most yields across the curve are down by call it 80 basis points-ish. We do see the yield curve, uh, the twos tens, as well as that three month, 10 year, continuing to be inverted at, I mean, the twos tens around negative 75 basis points. So these are all dynamics we're watching, but then perhaps structurally speaking and how the US has, 
historically financed its trade and current account deficits is via the issuance of treasury bonds. I mean, if you, if you imagine the U.S. economy to be like a household, then yeah. if you don't, if you make less than you earn, you need to take on credit. You need to take on debt, and that's exactly what the U.S. government's done in the past. All the deficits have gotten financed somehow, and that channel was the tre- or is still the treasury market. What we see, broadly speaking, though that foreign holders of treasuries are not in as good of a position. The, uh, the factors are twofold. First, you have uh, friendly countries such as the EU and also Japan running, current, uh, running a lot less of a uh, current account surplus. In fact, they're running deficits right now. Mm-hmm. So you don't have those natural buyers. Then the second factor that's really important is in a world that's maybe more multipolar, you have countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, but also China not as willing to recycle their current account surpluses into U.S. treasuries. One, one key factor flowing into that equation is, of course, what's happened around, in and around the Russian invasion of Ukraine with some of these assets that have gotten frozen. And maybe some of these global actors are not nearly as willing to put money back into U.S. treasuries. So these are structural factors that need to be watched really closely, and that will impact ultimately the path of the U.S. fiscal deficit and how much the U.S. can basically afford to run large deficits in the midst of social security costs continuing to increase, military costs continuing to increase, and so on and so forth. And that is uh, that is some great insight, Giannis. It is absolutely always a pleasure to have you on the show. Giannis Mindall, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Always, always a pleasure. The Blue Line Futures chart book is available in the description of the podcast on bluelinefutures.com, as well as attached to the email sent to clients every Sunday. Not a client? Reach out to podcast at bluelinefutures.com for a two-week complimentary trial of our premium research covering equity indices, bonds, metals, grains, seasonal trades, and more. Thanks again, Giannis. I can't wait for Wednesday. It's going to be an exciting week. Absolutely. It's going to stay really busy. (laughs) Take care, buddy. All opinions expressed by the program participants are their own and do not reflect those of Blue Line Futures LLC or their affiliates. The content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as trading advice. Futures trading involves a substantial risk of loss and may not be suitable for all investors. Therefore, carefully consider whether such trading is suitable for your financial condition.